Center or see me for more information. We have a really special night being planned, Sunday night, February 17 at 5.30 in the sanctuary. We're calling it Pray for Our Children and Grandchildren Night. Kim Winthy had a vision for this. She came to me several weeks ago and said, what do you think? I said, let's give it a try. Somebody asked me, asked me after first service, what's the agenda? The agenda is this. We're going to pray for our children and our grandchildren. That's pretty much the agenda. So if you want to come out 17th of February, there may be five of us. There may, may be a hundred of us. I don't know, but you are invited right here in the sanctuary. CIY Believe is just a couple months away, and the junior high mission trip is scheduled for this July to Cincinnati, Ohio, and a very important uh, informational meeting is being held next week after second service for junior high students and their parent, parents or guardians in regards to that trip. Jesus the great I am. We've been journeying through the gospel of John and I am and I continue to challenge you to spend time during the week reading through the gospel of John as we try to this year better understand Jesus. Maybe better than we've ever understood him before. And our first journey this year is through the different I am statements. Jesus said about himself in the Gospel of John that I am the bread of life, and I am the light of the world, and I am the gate, and I am the good shepherd, and I am the resurrection and the life, and I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the vine, and you are the branches. In week one of our study, we looked at John chapter 6. John chapter 6, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. And the big idea was Jesus is the life source for those who follow after him. We've all been hungry physically at, at some time. Some of us may be hungry right now. You're already thinking, what am I going to have for lunch? It's that spiritual hunger that Jesus is addressing here. Jesus is the life source for those who follow after him. Last week, we looked at John chapter 8, where Jesus said for the first of two times, I am the light of the world. And we looked at that, that case of the woman that was caught in adultery. And the fact that Jesus, who was sinless, who was perfect in every way, had every right to condemn her. But he chose grace instead. He reached out and he loved her and he said, I am the light of the world. And, and I can't get past the image. The, the, the bondage of sin creates spiritual darkness. It's a darkness that will destroy. But Jesus Christ is the light that leads to life. And at the conclusion of John chapter 8, we see a, a, a great debate take place between the Pharisees and Jesus and we didn't have time last week, we didn't look at this, and we're not going to look at all of chapter 8, but as we get ready to move into John chapter 9, I want to just share with you some of the things that Jesus said to these Pharisees. They were questioning his legitimacy. They were questioning if he had any right at all to say things like, I am the bread of life, and I am the light of the world. And in verse 32 of John chapter 8, he said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And at this, they just go crazy. The Pharisees can't believe it. They go, set us free. We're not slaves. We've never been slaves. They don't know their Old Testament history very well. They can't believe it. Well, in verse 42, Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me. And they cry out, they lean on one of the great heroes of the faith from the Old Testament. They say, we have no father but Abraham. Remember that. No father but Abraham. They accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed. They say, you are possessed by a demon. And Jesus says, I am not possessed by a demon in verse 49. But he says, I do honor my father and you dishonor me. 
And then he really pushes things over the top in verse 58 when he says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. Now, that may not seem like that big of a deal to you or to me in 2013. But in the first century world, there was one word used to describe what Jesus had uttered, and it's the word blasphemy. Jesus has opened himself up to the charge of blasphemy. And it's in that context that we get to one of my favorite chapters in the Gospel of John. It's the story of Jesus healing the man born blind. And we're going to read all 41 verses, so dig in. If you don't have your Bible, grab a pew Bible. 1061 is the page. We're going to read this together. And I've tried to set this story up in four parts. The situation, the miracle, the reactions, and the point. So let's dive in and read the first five verses of John chapter 9. It says, as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And the first thing we see here is what I call a human tragedy. A man born blind. Just think for a moment how much you like to be able to see. Do you remember those of you that had glasses? Like right now, I can't make out hardly any faces at all because I'm so thankful for my glasses. I can't imagine going through life in darkness and I can't see anything at all. I love being able to see. You love being able to see. But if I could not see for whatever reason, if my, if my sight was taken from me today, I could file for disability. And I would be able to, to get a check. And I would be able to still provide somewhat for my family. Life might change in some ways, but there are, are, um, there, there are possibilities for someone that is disabled that can't, that can't see today where government will help them and take care of them. First century world... You're born blind. You'll probably never marry because there's no one in their right mind that is going to attach themselves to you when you have no way at all of earning a living. What about that disability check? I don't think so. Not going to happen. In fact, the only way that you would have any income at all is if you found a place of prominence where a lot of traffic gathered, like, say, the temple courts, and you held your hand out, and you said, help me, help me, help me. It's, it's a human tragedy. We don't know his name. We don't know his story. We don't read about him after John chapter 9. But it's a human tragedy. And it's a human tragedy that repeated itself over and over and over again in Scripture. On the heels of this human tragedy, we also see what I'm calling a wrong question. It's a wrong question. The disciples, they see the man, Jesus sees the man, and their first question is this, who sinned that he was born blind? Did he sin in the womb or was it his parents' fault? And this was really in line with first century Jewish thinking in many ways. The idea was if a tragedy like this happened, somebody did something wrong. Somebody sinned in order for this, this tragedy to take place. Now don't get me wrong. 
There are things that we can do in our lives that are sin that can create terrible consequences and suffering. And if we were to engage in such behavior, it would be our fault that we were dealing with the consequences. For instance, if I just decided today that I don't have enough money, I need more money, so I go and I I get a weapon of some sort, and I show up to a place of business here in Clinton, and I go in with the weapon, and I say, give me all your money, and they give me all their money, and I'm on the run, and I'm a fugitive, and there's wanted posters, Greg Taylor, fugitive preacher, all of that out there, and I'm captured, and I have to go before the district attorney and all of that, I'm going to pay a price. I'm not going to be preaching from John chapter 10 next week. I mean, and it would be all my fault for doing that. But this is the wrong question that they're asking here. They're saying, whose fault is it that he's born blind? They're not asking, how can we help? They're not asking, what can we do to make the situation better? And it's in that context that Jesus realizes he has a, a, a ripe opportunity. It's a teaching moment. It's an opportunity for him to use the supernatural to communicate an incredible truth to his disciples. And that's what I love so much about Jesus. So much of the really great nuggets of Jesus' teaching happen when we least expect them to happen. I guarantee you the disciples didn't think something miraculous was going to happen on this day. They just thought they were off to, to morning prayers. And the next thing you know, Jesus seizes the opportunity. And that brings us to part two of our our story today, and it's the miracle. And it's really just two verses. Look at verses six and seven. Having said this, Jesus spit on the ground. He made some mud with the saliva. He put it on the man's eyes. Go, Jesus told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now, You know, those of us that have been in the church and we've been around the Bible a lot of our lives, we know a lot of these miracles inside out. Many many of you, you are there. You you learned this in junior church and maybe you had a flannel board or something and you saw the little guy going across. But when you sit here and just kind of read it and you just realize what happened, Jesus spits on the ground and he makes mud. He doesn't say anything to the guy. He just starts rubbing mud on the guy's eyes and he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, if you're, you're the blind guy, isn't that kind of a kick in the teeth a little bit? I mean, you're begging. He's not giving you any money. He's rubbing mud on your eyes. And what I see when I see these, uh, these passages of Scripture here, number one, I see an unrequested miracle. Many times when we read the Gospels, we see people saying, Jesus, heal my son. He's died. Or Jesus, we're really hungry. How about we do something with those five loaves and those two fish? Or Jesus, we're scared to death of the wind. Can you save us? This is an unrequested miracle. My man is just begging. I need money. Help me. And Jesus uses him. We don't know why. He just uses him. An unrequested miracle. The second thing that we see here is a a very basic method. There's really not anything flashy. Spits on the ground, makes mud, rubs it on his eyes, says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And that leads me to the third thing I want you to see here. We see a significant location. The pool of Siloam was a very significant location. It was in the the south part, just kind of outside the city gates of Jerusalem. And the Pool of Siloam had a great, rich history in the Old Testament. We talked last week that the, the, the context of this entire gathering in John chapter 7, 8, and 9 was the Feast of the 
Tabernacles. Someone got it. Good deal. The Feast of the Tabernacles. And it was an eight-day festival, and everyone would gather together, and they would reenact all of these lessons from their past. For instance, they would march around the city walls, and they would sing and play trumpets. And that reminded them of the story of Jericho, how the walls came tumbling down. And they would say to their children or their grandchildren or their nieces and their nephews, we didn't think that we could get through those incredible gates, but God provided and our ancestors seized the city. Or they would go to the Pool of Siloam and they would get water and they would draw from it and they would come out into the temple court and they would pour that water out into a basin. And that was a reminder, a teaching tool, where they could say to their children and their grandchildren, children for 40 years we wandered in the wilderness for 40 years many different times in that journey we thought we were going to die from thirst we thought we were parched to the point of death and every time god our father provided it's interesting to me that jesus pulls on this pool of siloam imagery you can read about the pool of siloam in the book of isaiah chapters 8 and 22 you can read about the rebuilding of the pool of siloam in the book of nehemiah chapter 3 And Jesus picks the pool of Siloam for this man to go and wash off the mud and the unbelievable happens. The mud that was made by spit is washed off and now he can see. Now, I told first service, this is really where chapter 9 should end. We ought to have a verse 8 that said something like, everyone was really in awe of Jesus and they all went and ate breakfast or they all went to the temple or they all went on their way. Because Jesus just performed an awesome miracle. He changed a man's life forever. How could there be a variety of reactions? How is that possible? How could be a reaction be anything other than hallelujah, praise the Lord, Jesus, you are incredible. But this crowd, tough crowd. So let's read on. And this is really the bulk of the message. What were the reactions? Verse 8, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like the man. But he himself insisted, and I love this, I am the man. Verse 10, how then were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, and I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know. The first thing we see is an honest debate, verses 8 through 12. We see an honest debate. The neighbors are saying, we think this is the guy. He usually wears a tunic like that. I think those are the sandals that he wears, but I'm not really sure if it's him or not. Because the guy that I'm thinking of is blind, he can't see a thing, he's always begging, and this guy's walking around telling people how nice their shirt looks. He's walking around telling people how beautiful the day is. This can't be the guy. So an honest debate takes off here. And if it was just an honest debate, that would be okay, but there's much, much more. Look at verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who'd been blind. Now the day on which Jesus made the mud... And open the man's eyes was a Sabbath. You might want to underline that in your Bible. It was a Saturday. It was the day of worship. Six days of creation, and then on the seventh day, God rested. And that's kind of how the the world went for, for God's people. Six days they would work, and man, on the Sabbath, they would shut it down. And by shut it down, I mean shut it down. You didn't do anything 
on the Sabbath. And if you did something on the Sabbath and you were a God-fearer, you would hear about it. People were very, very particular about doing things on the Sabbath. But surely a miracle wouldn't matter, right? They wouldn't care about a miracle. I mean, he changed this guy's life, right? Let's read on. Verse 15. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. The man replied, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. Pretty simple explanation. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. Now at that, there should have been massive laughter. People should have been like rolling, laughing so much. But no, they were, they were really serious with that accusation. Others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. And the man replied, he is a prophet. Not only do we see an honest debate, but we see an unfair inquisition. An unfair inquisition. My friends, a miracle has just taken place. More than likely, nobody gathering in this temple area had ever seen something like this before. And we want to debate about whether it was on Saturday or another day of the week. We want to say he's not from God because he didn't wait a day. He didn't go home and go through his activities that day and come back the next day and hope he finds the guy and then heal him. That's kind of what they're saying here. He did it on the Sabbath, so he can't really be from God. Let's read on. Verse 18. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? The parents answered, we know he is our son and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Now, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Here we see what I'm calling a cowardly deflection. A cowardly deflection. I want you to imagine for just a moment, and some of you, you've lived this, you've experienced this. Let's say there, there was a birth that took place and your child was born and everything wasn't exactly like you hoped that it would be. And let's just say they were born blind. And so like from the, the, the earliest of days, you're trying to help them, you're trying to equip them to live life without the blessing of eyesight. I mean, imagine what preschool would be like. Kindergarten, first grade. School musicals, school plays, baseball games, parades, church services. Just think of how different life would be if, if that was you. And then, one day, here comes your adult son. Maybe he's 20, maybe he's 30, maybe he's 40. We don't know, but all of a sudden he can see. He's like, Mom, you're beautiful. Dad, what's up with the goatee? I mean, he's just going crazy because he can see. And you are so excited that he can see. And they come and they say, well, what do you have to say? And you say, well, I don't know. He's of age. Go ask him. I don't have any answer for this. Yeah, he was born blind. Yeah, he's been blind his whole life. But don't bother us with such questions. Go on your way. It's a cowardly 
deflection. And John tells us why they are so cowardly here. What were they afraid of? What's it say in the text? It says that anyone who believed that Jesus was the Messiah could no longer come worship in the synagogue. They had a lot to lose by saying, yeah, it is that guy Jesus, and he's pretty spectacular. Now, we can't even fathom not being able to come and worship at our house of worship, can we? I mean, can you imagine if you showed up for church today, and you got ready to walk in, and Kevin Peterson's there with a big stop sign? No, not you. You aren't coming in here. You're out. Move on down the highway. It wouldn't happen. And if it did happen, we'd throw him out probably, right? It wouldn't happen. But that's exactly what they're afraid of. They are so afraid of what might happen to them, they can't even give credit to the man who's changed their son's life forever. It's a cowardly deflection. Let's read on. Verse 24, a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. What a great statement, by the way. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. Verse 25, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know, the man said. But one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. Verse 26, then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Sarcasm meters going off right there. Sarcasm. Verse 28, then they hurled insults at him and they said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. Last chapter it was Abraham, now it's Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And here we see a transparent explanation. I mean, this man's just being honest. He said, how did he do it? I have no idea. Today I woke up blind and I'm going to bed with eyesight. End of story. I, I don't know what else you want me to say. Is he a sinner, they asked. He says, I have no idea if he's a sinner. But why would God use a sinner to do a miracle none of us have ever seen before? I love the passion of this man born blind. I love the boldness. Of, we don't even know his name. And he's basically saying, I don't have answers to your religious questions or your religious accusations, but this much I know, my life's been changed forever today. See ya, wouldn't want to be ya. He's out. He's all done. And that leads us to the fifth reaction, just one verse, verse 34. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. Remember the question way back in verse 2, who sinned, this man or his parents? You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. It's an unholy eviction. The day the man who's been blind his entire life is able to finally see because of the graciousness of Jesus is the day he's excommunicated from worship. He's kicked out. It's an unholy eviction. Now, it would be comical if it wasn't so tragic. We could chuckle at it 
if it didn't really happen. And that leads us to what I'm calling part four, the point. And, you know, if you've been zoning in and out, you're thinking 49ers, Ravens, you're trying to figure out what you're doing, I really want you to get these next five minutes. Because John 9 is the story of a physical miracle, but the physical miracle is really not the big deal. It's really not the point. And what I want you to see first and foremost is that this physical miracle leads to spiritual belief in Jesus. That's the most important thing in John chapter 9. And I want to put some scripture up on the screen, and I want to read it for you. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they'd thrown him out, and when he found him, Jesus goes and finds him. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, that was Jesus' favorite title for himself, the Son of Man. And there's Old Testament roots. Go to Daniel, go to Ezekiel. The prophets talked about how the Son of Man will come, and he will be the Messiah. And Jesus says, do you know the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Verse 36, honest, transparent response. Who is it, sir, the man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe and he worshiped him. See, if the only thing that happened to this man born blind who was given sight was that he was able to see for the rest of his life, that's pretty awesome. That's pretty cool. That's life transforming. That's a forever change. But the awesome thing about this guy is not only did he gain physical sight, he came to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. His, his spiritual life was changed forever. He was changed physically, but he was also changed spiritually. But we also have to see in our text that those that were most prepared to see the Savior, they remain blind. Those that have been studying the faith their entire life should have seen the Messiah. I mean, they knew the prophets. They knew the history. They knew the foretelling. They knew everything that had been predicted. And they stand face to face with Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, hope for the world. In the context of a great miracle being performed, and they're not buying it one bit. Look at verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Now some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains they were pretty religious people, those Pharisees. They knew their history. They knew the law. Many of them probably had perfect attendance stickers for weekly worship. They did all the things that people are supposed to do, but if I could paraphrase Jesus, I think Jesus would say it's not about doing, it's about being. 
And when I read John chapter 8, and when I read John chapter 9, and I hear Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, and I see obstacles and resistance and people doing anything they possibly can to stop him and stop his ministry because they're afraid of what it might do to their religious status, I am reminded that there really is a battle between light and darkness. Now, the temptation for us is to say, well, that's just first century. That's just 29 AD. That's not, that's not involving us today. We'd never be like that today. We'd never get so caught up in our religion that we miss Jesus. We'd never get so caught up in doing that we forgot we need to be in Christ, that we need to believe with all our heart, would we? We're, we're above that, right? That's not a temptation for you or for me, is it? Here's the bottom line. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light. He's your solution to your problem of spiritual darkness. He's my solution to my problem of spiritual darkness. Can you see the light? Do you know the light? Are you living in the light? Let's pray. God, thank you for today. And thank you for your word. And thank you for this account of this man. We don't even know his name. But I thank you so much for his testimony. I thank you so much for, uh, for how his changed life impacted others. And it's my prayer that his changed life will continue to impact lives. Just as... Uh, as Jesus says, I am the light of the world, I'm reminded that we as Christ's followers are called to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We're, we're called to shine our lights for your glory. And so thank you so much for the hope that Jesus brings. Thank you for the difference that he makes in our life. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Every week we do a, a song of commitment. We call it an invitation. And if Jesus is not Lord of your life, I'm just giving it to you straight. I wouldn't go another week without him. That's just straight up honest from my heart. And I know there's probably some of us here today that we couldn't honestly wear that label Christ follower. That's not, that's not where we're at in our life. And if the public thing coming down is, is too much for you, I'm going to be around after the service. I'd love to meet with you this week. I'd love to talk with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to live in the light. But but here's the thing. I bet most of us at some time in our life, we've made a decision to follow Jesus. It's how most churches are, filled with Christians. And so what I want you to do as Jim gets ready to lead us in this song is I want you to think of someone in your life, maybe it's a relative, a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, and they're not living in the light. They don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And I want you to take really seriously that call of Jesus in Matthew 5 to be the salt of the earth to be the light of the world. And right now to think of ways how you can let your light shine so it'll just be obvious to that person in your life. And not just for today and not just for this week, but for 2013, just, just make this year your goal to let your light shine like maybe you never have before in just that one relationship. As we stand together and we sing our song of commitment. Oh uh-huh.
Hey, just want to remind you, in case you got in late today, Breakfast Club this week has been moved from Friday to Thursday. So junior high, senior high students still come on out, but come on Thursday. There's no school on Friday, so that's going to take place. Also want to remind you, early youth groups today for grade school and preschool, 